good morning. How many of you know who just read the scripture for us? Does he look new to you? John is John is married. John Tonello is married to Megan. They joined Highlands at our last members meeting. And if you were here, we I baptized both of them during the morning service where it sounded like this wall was going to crash in. How many of you were here? Because that was very memorable. And we have since found out the problem and uh, the wall is intact and we shouldn't have that problem anymore. So that was John Tonello. He is a brother in Christ and a member of Highlands Baptist Church. It usually bothers me when men like David pen a psalm and they talk about the numbers of, of the hairs on their head. I'm thinking David had a good head of hair because Absalom, his son, is like praised for that. Except for this one, it says that my sins overcome me like the hairs on my head, which means I have reached sinless perfectionism, right? (laughs) Psalm 40. We are only two psalms away from finishing the first of five books of psalms. All 150 psalms compose uh, the Psalter of the Old Testament, but there are five individual books uh, within those 150 psalms. The, the message of Psalm 40 is a message that we will need constantly. It is the joyful experience and expectation of deliverance. Even when we rejoice in past deliverances, we find ourselves in trouble again and longing for, looking for again, an expectation of future deliverances. So this is what Psalm 40 does. It mixes praise for the past, joyful experience, with concern about the future, which is hopeful deliverance. And it mixes those two to show us that it is not an artificial tension. This is what life is made of. We praise God for past deliverances while finding ourselves in present trouble again and hoping for future deliverances. Ultimately, a future and final deliverance. Michael Wilcox in his small commentary said this, threads from the last half dozen Psalms are drawn together here in Psalm 40. So we can look all the way back at Psalm 34 and see these themes of waiting and trouble and suffering and sin's consequences all culminating in Psalm 40. Praise for the past and concern about the future. So here's the reality this morning, and we've already felt it since we've woken up. If you have placed your faith in Christ for deliverance, you have been saved. You have been rescued. You have been delivered from sin's eternal penalty. Right. You believe that, right? That if you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, there is nothing more to be done or that can be done. You are ultimately and fully freed. The worst part of the curse of Genesis 3, death has been taken care of. That's the truth. But having been delivered from sin's eternal penalty does not insulate you from sin's lingering effects. Present troubles. Heartaches. Disappointments. Discontentment. Weariness, doubts about God's character and doubts about God's ways and anxieties and depression and cynicism and borderline hopelessness. And I'm talking to believers. 
David said this in Psalm 38, 17, for I am ready to fall. As a believer, he says that he is slipping. Matter of fact, he's going to explain it this morning as a slimy pit that he could not get out of on his own. These are the weeds and the mosquitoes or the viruses in the jungle of life that remain, even though we have been ultimately delivered in Christ. We live in this world of trouble. And Psalm 40 is going to bring together joyful experiences of past deliverances together with the future concerns of this life. And he's going to place them side by side. So let's look at this seven sections in our consideration. Let's look at the first section of three verses. And this is where we see David putting forth the joyful experience of deliverance. I'm not going to reread the text except where it's necessary. Because John already read the entire psalm for us. But the psalmist's struggle is seen here, especially his struggles in Psalm 37, 38, and 39. Psalms that sometimes, I mean, when we were preaching through them and teaching through them, they seem to lack a high point. Like some of the psalms didn't even feel like there was closure. Well, now those psalms and those struggles reach a definite conclusion. I do want to read verse 1. Look at it. I waited... Patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. Look at those two words, waited and patiently. The Hebrew does not use a different word for waited and patiently. This is the picture. I waited, waited. I was patient, patient. It's simply a technique in the Hebrew to emphasize something. It's the same word. I waited and waited. Do you know some of us are in trials where we are waiting, 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 waiting. You can feel it. And time goes by and other people see a deliverance over here and another person sees an answer to prayer and yet you are here seemingly in the slimy pit of life waiting and what? And waiting. And you pray and you fast and another month ticks by and guess what? You're still what? Waiting and waiting. Psalm 40 is for you. I waited, waited for the Lord. And here's the future hope. He heard me. He inclined to my cry. The psalmist's trouble is described as a pit of destruction or desolation. The, the illustration he puts forward is this slimy, pit of mud that he keeps slipping on and cannot get out of. But note this, note his consistent posture. Look back at 38 verse 15, Psalm 38 verse 15. But for you, O Lord, do I wait? It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. So even in the waiting, waiting, he is confident that God will answer. Look at Psalm 39 verse 7. He said, and now, O Lord, for what do I wait? Well, it's not a what, but a whom. He says, my hope is in you. And I believe the sweet hope of last week, last week's psalm is found in 39, verse 15. Look at Psalm 39, verse 15. But for you, O Lord, do I what? Do I wait? It is you, O Lord, my God, who will Answer. So the frustration of God's seeming silence. And some of us in here, there is a tension in our heart where, where it seems as though God is passive 
and disinterested and does not care about us personally. That is resolved in Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited, waited, and what we were hoping for, his unmistakable answer, is resolved. And the experience of deliverance, or what we call salvation, is the story of what God has done. I want you to just look at these phrases. Look at verse 1. This is God's deliverance. He inclined to me. Look at verse 1. He heard. Look at verse 2. He drew me up. Look at verse 2. He set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Look at verse 3. He put a new song in my mouth. He did all these things. That's who we're waiting for. That is who we are waiting, waiting for. For God to unmistakably work in our helplessness. Do you right now incline to God with a positive and active trust? And if not, what are you hoping for? What are you waiting for? Are you just letting the the succession of moments tick by and you're just hoping that tomorrow is better? Let me ask you, what is going to make tomorrow better? Who can make tomorrow better for you? So we wait and wait and wait on the Lord. We're going to see why in just a second. The psalm is going to tell us why we wait for him personally. So a place of helpless and hopeless loss of traction in the slime pit of life. David is waiting on the Lord. Now, it's possible that what David is referring to here is a severe sickness. But we've seen that in other psalms, even previous to this, all the way back to Psalm 30. But this is what is categorized as a royal psalm. And it's something that the king would read or that people would sing at the offering. And so people connect it more to a military engagement where disaster was impending and God stepped in and delivered them. And when God does that, look at what happens. Look at verse 3. He has put a new what? He has put a new song in my mouth. Now, this is not the first time we've come to this phrase. Uh, It is used six times in the Psalms, one time in Isaiah and twice in Revelation. When God comes in decisively with a definite act of deliverance, the natural response is a song of praise. That's what people do when they are delivered. It is a verbal response through song of a fresh experience of God's steadfast love and deliverance. So this is what a new song is. A new reason to praise God. A fresh act of God's deliverance in history or a new occasion for rejoicing. I'm going to show you two reasons in the Old Testament that back this up, that brings forth a new song and that when others see it, they actually fear. Okay, so all that is going to start to make sense in the very familiar portion of Psalm 40. Because verse 3 says this, Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Let's look at the next section. The next section is two verses. Having been delivered in the past, the psalmist moves to encourage all those to wait on God as he did. Look at verse 4. Because we're presented with two choices. You can trust in God or you can trust in anything and everyone else. You can trust in God or you can trust in yourself. You can trust in God or you can trust in the next election. You can trust in God or you can trust in your finances. Those are the choices. Verse four, blessed 
is the man or blessed is the person who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to and fill in the blank anything else as his ultimate trust. The reason we should trust, and this is what I want to highlight and make clear this morning, because we hear this all the time, we'll trust the Lord. It's almost so cliche, it doesn't even matter. It doesn't even mean anything anymore. Oh, just trust the Lord. Okay, but what do you mean by that? Why? Why should I trust Him when I can't even get my traction under me and I've been in this slimy pit for so long that I am waiting and waiting and waiting? Look at the second part of verse 5. Okay, it begins, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, Your wondrous deeds and Your thoughts toward us. Here's why you can trust Him. Here's why you should trust Him. None can compare with you. There is no one like God. That's the reason we should trust Him. Do you know that the Philistines thought about a certain man this way? Remember this, when, when the Israelites and Philistines came to battle and they said, well, let's let our champion come out because there is no one like him. And we still know his name, don't we? What's his name? Steve. No, we, we know his name. It's, it's what? Say it loud enough so those streaming can hear it. Okay, his name is Goliath. Why do we know that? Because it seemed like no one could compare to him. I mean, there's this description, not only of his physique, but of his armor. I mean, he was a vicious, incredible specimen of an elite warrior. Do you remember what David said to this giant to whom none could compare with? Listen to what he says in 1 Samuel 17. David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. And many of you are going to know what he says next, remember? But I come to you with, with what? With my sling and five stones, right? Is that what he says? Little sling, five stones. We've all heard the story, right? In case Goliath had his brothers. That, that is nowhere in the text. That's not even what he says. I come to you in, not with something, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Now, what effect did that have? Did it have the effect that Psalm, verse, Psalm 40, verse 3 says, where it says, many will see and fear. So the battle unfolds exactly like David said it would. 1 Samuel seventeen fifty one. when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they what? They fled. Many will see God's deliverance and they will fear. You know, after combining God's deliverance, Psalm 40, verse 2, with observers who fear, Psalm 40, verse 3, resulting in a new song, Psalm 40, verse 3, we should go back all the way to Exodus and stand on the shores of the sea where God delivered the Hebrews from the advanced and lethal military of Egypt. You remember this story as well. Men trained in war, harnessing the most advanced military equipment, chasing tired slaves. 
I mean, if the balance couldn't be more unequal, it is in Exodus. Unorganized, unarmed, and cornered. Think of this. Special forces with the tactical advantage in every way, pursuing unarmed and overworked refugees. Who do you think is going to win? What everybody thinks at that moment, even what the Hebrews thought, except for one man. And you know the story, God delivered. And a new song sprung from that deliverance. Matter of fact, it is called the Song of the Sea. It appears in Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 to 18. There's another new song that is often overlooked. It is followed in verses 20 and 21 by a much shorter song sung by Miriam and the other women. New songs that sprang from God's fresh deliverance. Go back. Look at Psalm 40, verse 5. Why do we trust God? None can compare with you. Listen to the song of the sea in Exodus 15, verse 11. Just listen. Compare this with Psalm 40, verse 5. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders, You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. None compares to him. Now, did the truth of Psalm 40 verse 3 happen? Did people see it and fear? Let me keep reading the song of the sea. Verse 14, Exodus chapter 15. The people have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Why? Remember, they just came out of the sea. They don't even own land. They have no organized military. What are all the nations fearing? Because of your greatness, Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. Here is the decisive reason why all the nations fear. It is God's deliverance. It is what Exodus 15, 19 says. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground In the midst of the sea. Are you in a slimy pit right now of life's experiences? Are you waiting and waiting? You're almost tired of waiting. You're almost ready to give up the whole idea of God. Listen to what Moses said all the way back in Exodus 14, verse 13. Just before a deliverance like they had never seen before. He said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today for the Egyptians whom you see. And what Egyptians did they see? The glimmering armor of a charioteer army pursuing them. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. They waited and waited and God delivered and a new song sprung. 
Now, from these deliverances, even David's deliverances, that moves us into the next section. And this is an expression of commitment. Because when you see God decisively act and deliver, look at verses 6 to 8. Here's an expression of commitment. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted. But you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Now, the background of that statement is 1 Samuel 15, where Israel's first king chose not to obey God. And and the prophet Samuel had to come and say, you have disobeyed the Lord. And, and, And Saul offered all these excuses. That, oh, no, no, I've done exactly what you've asked me to do. And of course, Samuel says, then why is there this bleeding of sheep that I hear? And why did you keep these people alive and why did you save the best for yourself it was at that point that god was raising up another man and what is his name david and he's described as a man after my own heart matter of fact it was samuel who said to saul to obey is better than what to sacrifice mere formalism is not enough mere churchiness is not enough To obey is better than sacrifice. God is not interested with the empty observance of religious practice. There's a frequently used illustration because it is effective. It is as if a man brought his wife a dozen roses of her favorite color and she exclaims, Oh, babe, that is not what I call my wife. I always think of that pig that acted like like a sheepdog. You remember that? Babe, the pig. Anyway, that's besides the point. Oh, babe, you didn't have to. And he says what? Yes, I did. It's my duty. Instead of what? I know I didn't have to do it, but I love you. That's the difference between mere external religion and the heart. This is exactly the core of what this psalm is saying. As a matter of fact, that section is going to point us to our conclusion, which is going to happen soon. And it's going to point us to a person who provides ultimate deliverance. David is saying, I'm offering these sacrifices, but you know what? I have seen your deliverance and now I have heard your law and it is going into my ear. You have opened my ear. The idea is like an open well and his law is going down now into his heart. So he says, look at verse eight, Psalm 40. I delight to do your will. It's not burdensome. It's not just duty. There's a joyfulness in it. I delight to do your will. Oh, my God, your law is within my heart. That commitment now moves to proclamation. The next section, verses nine to ten. This section is after the shows that after the after the psalmist's commitment to God, he now proclaims it to other people. Matter of fact, I'm I'm not going to read these two verses, but but I want you to see this. And the word proclamation in the Hebrew means to proclaim news. It's the exact definition of the New Testament's word gospel to proclaim good news. He says, I have not kept from proclaiming good news to the people, to the congregation. Matter of fact, having experienced God's deliverance, look at what he does. Verse nine, he has not restrained his lips. Look at verse 10. He has not hidden God's deliverance. Look at verse 10. He has spoken of God's faithfulness and his salvation. Look at verse 11. He has not concealed God's steadfast love and his faithfulness from the great congregation. 
We share these deliverances. We share his salvation. Through commitment comes proclamation. Look at the next section, because even though he is recommitted, part of that commitment you will see in verses 11 to 12 contains continued prayer. A trust, look at verse 11, in God's steadfast love and his faithfulness. Those are the things that preserve him. Verse 12, we have already mentioned. And then I want to move into the next section where you can see David's sin and failure cause him to look to God, to depend on God. Look at verse 13. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Right? This is past deliverances. He finds himself now in trouble again, and he's depending on future deliverances. This is that is, that is the, that tension of life that Psalm 40 brings together. He's not just rejoicing in past deliverances. Look at what he says in verse 13. Be pleased, O Lord, to what? To deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help. He's praying that again. He needs to because God has an amazing way of allowing you to go from trouble to trouble to make sure you depend on him. To make sure there is a waiting, waiting on Him as the Deliverer. Look at verse 16. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. See, God isn't interested in just delivering you. He's trying to do something in your heart that brings forth praise. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. Now, I want you to look at the changed perspective, and that's the last thing we'll look at in this section. Look at verse 14. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether. Look at this phrase, who seek to snatch away my life. Look at verse 16. But may all who what? May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. The psalmist was on the edge of losing all hope. Verse 12, he says, my heart fails me. His next action is praying and asking God for help. So that dependence then culminates in the final section, his own desperate need. Look at verse 17. As for me. Now, remember all the titles David had. Remember all the experiences David had. As for me, look at look at his posture now of humility. I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. Listen to what he says. You are my help and my deliverer. I want you to feel the urgency. Do not delay. Oh, my God. I'm in trouble again. I'm suffering the consequences of sin again. I'm disillusioned again. I'm cynical again. I'm losing hope again. I'm about to fall again. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay. Oh, my God. The psalm ends on a note of confidence. That's what hope is. Confident expectation. Now, in the last four minutes, I want to show you where Psalm 40 ultimately points. It points us to something better than David. Something bigger than David. A portion of Psalm 40 is directly linked to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 13. The prophetic heart of this psalm is found in verses 6 through 8. The background, of course, when Samuel had already told Saul that he would be replaced by a man 
after God's own heart. He says that in 1 Samuel 13, 14, indicating that David would take the throne. But in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 13, look at verse 22. It links that psalm and David with someone else. Look at verse 22, Acts chapter 13. And when he had removed him, Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, here's the description, a man after my heart. What does that look like? And is that reserved only for David? What does a person after God's own heart look like? What do they act like? We'll keep reading. Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. It's exactly what Psalm 40 verse 8 says. Look at verse 23. Of this man's offspring, because we know what? Let me ask you the, the easiest question of the sermon. Did David always do all the will of God? He has that gross double sin on his record. You remember this? So what are we left longing for? Because all of a sudden, David's obedience is not enough for us. We're longing for a king who completely obeys all the will of God. We're looking for a man, a true king, who delights in the will of the Lord and who perfectly obeys so he can take that perfection and place it into our hearts. Keep reading, verse 23, Acts chapter 13. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he has promised Hebrews chapter 10, turn to Hebrews 10, verse 5 to 7, quotes Psalm 40. It actually takes the words of Psalm 40 and places them in the mouth of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 5. Okay, so you're familiar with Psalm 40 now. I want you to notice the difference. There's, there's some different wording that is not found in Psalm 40. Consequently, Hebrews 10, verse 5. When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Do you see Psalm 40 right there? But what's different? Instead of saying an open ear as David did, because David could only listen to God's word and obey it, Christ said, not you haven't given me an open ear to obey your law. Christ said, a body you have prepared for me. Because he is the word. What do these words mean then when taking Christ into consideration? And this is where we're going to land and then we're going to sing a hymn of response. Number one, the mystery of the incarnation, Christ becoming a human, is set forth. The duties of God's servant, the Messiah Christ, are found in the scroll of the book. It is a body specifically prepared as an acceptable sacrifice. The entire Old Testament points this direction. We need a king who will eventually die for his people and win, if you would, or accomplish a righteousness which we can never have through a thousand sacrifices. But one sacrifice 
will be sufficient if it is the right person. That's the promise of the Messiah all the way through the Old Testament. That's why you have four Gospels recording His life, His birth, His ministry. Not only is the mystery of the Incarnation set forth, but the need for redemption, for purchase, is set forth. So what that means is this. Christ is the one who would offer His life in obedience. That's what He says. Philippians 2.8 says this. And being found in human form, the Incarnation, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient. Okay, let me ask you, what does obedience for Jesus look like? Being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's what Christ's obedience accomplishes. Your salvation. Your rescue. Or in the words of Psalm 40, your deliverance. Your ultimate new song. Hebrews 10 verse 4 says this. It is impossible. This is why Christ had to be obedient to the point of death. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Those were just a shadow of the Christ who was to come and to die and to purchase your redemption. And third and finally, there is therefore that now no need for blood sacrifices any longer. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 8. When he said above, I want you to hear this again because he's going to quote Psalm 40. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he, had, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. Psalm 40. He does away with the first. Don't get lost now. The system of sacrifices in order to establish the second, a perfect man for a sacrifice. That's what John the Baptist said. Behold, the Lamb of God who what? Who takes away the sin of the world as a lamb, as a sacrifice. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands, which can never take away sins. That's why he never sat down. The priest's work in the temple, in the tabernacle, was never finished. He never sat down where his work was never completed. Listen to this. Offering repeatedly. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly, repeatedly, the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why? Because it is finished. What is he doing now? He is waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Are you in Christ this morning? If so, you, you are delivered. But even in Christ, you may be in a slimy pit. So wait and wait and wait for the one who has already given you ultimate deliverance, who can also, if he chooses by his will, to give you temporary deliverance. And if not, we still do not lose hope. There is a confident expectation that all things are becoming new. I'm going to invite our music team forward, and while they get into place, I'm going to read two passages. And you can go ahead and stand. Go ahead and stand before I read these two passages. 
Because forgiveness comes not by our works of righteousness and not by our obedience. Aren't you thankful for that? Forgiveness is not by our own obedience, but Christ's obedience. Listen to Hebrews 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He, Jesus, entered once for all into that holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, how much more will He purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant in Christ. Last Sunday, we lifted the juice and he said, this is my blood. This is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me because his life and death alone purchase our redemption. Now, how do we know that's the case? How do we know that the Father has received the Son's sacrifice for us? Because of the resurrection. Romans chapter 1, the last passage. Concerning His own Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace. And therefore we can sing that new song, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, He gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? If so, you are delivered. 